it got a letter. The letter informed those who had signed one of the registers that they would receive a portion of $500,000 that Volstead had set aside. The pastor of his church, Rapon Emmanuel, UMC, and other participants in the service were also included. Members of the church were stunned and in disbelief. They didn't know he had any money. The pastor had been tipped off by Volstead about the plan but took it for a joke. I did not pay serious attention to that because I never thought he would die so soon. Fellow members of Rapon Emmanuel remembered Volstead as quiet and perhaps a bit lonely but omnipresent whenever help was needed, especially at church and the local Kiwanis Club. Volstead led a men's group and the men's Bible study group at the church, worked on fundraising efforts for the Kiwanis, washed dishes at church events, whatever was needed. He had a very deep Christian faith that was very important to him, his friends said. He would do anything for anybody if he was able to do it. He was just all over the community. Volstead's faith was the center of his life. He regularly bore witness to people in his life and strangers. His Bible was held together with duct tape because he had read it so much. In addition to the 500000 for the funeral attendees, Volstead made substantial bequests to churches, Christian radio stations, the Kiwanis Club, and other local organizations. He was very concerned that anything he would do would go to do some good, one of the men's group members said. What his gift did was make people think. It made us all think about how we treat other people and opened a lot of people's eyes about being more kind, being more generous, being more thoughtful. Generosity changes lives. Our own and others. Today we begin the generous life. What matters to God? And what do we need? We all want to make a difference in the world. I think we can see that in the story of Dennis in every area of his life. And the way we use our resources determines our impact. The great paradox of life is this, Jesus said, those who try to hold on to their lives will lose them, and the ones who generously sacrifice their lives will gain them. We're going to be exploring how a generous life will change us and change the world. And over the next six weeks, we're going to look at generosity and the stories and lives of our Good Shepherd family, like we've already heard from Shelley last week and from Virginia today, both powerful stories. And through the five covenants we all make together as members of the United Methodist Church. In those five covenants, we all, they're not only a matter of money, our financial gifts, that's where we think about generosity the most, usually associated with but also generosity in our prayers, generosity in our presence, generosity in our service, and generosity in our witness. Six years ago, during the fall of my first year, we focused on the five practices of fruitful congregations. Anybody remember that so far back now? One of those practices was risk-taking missions and service. The generous life also focuses on service. 
Winston Churchill famously said, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And today we are focusing on generosity in our service, like we saw in the example of Dennis's story. And what we as a community of faith are giving to others in our community and in our world. You see, we have to decide just what kind of life we want to live. A life that is so centered in Christ that we can't help but serve. Like in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. Or a life so centered on ourselves that serving has to be squeezed out of us by others around us. Richard Stearns, the president of World Vision, for a time was a well-known Christian relief agency. In his book, The Hole in Our Gospel, tells this story. When my friend Jim Wallace was a seminary student, he and some of his classmates did a little experiment. They went through all 66 books of the Bible and underlined every passage and verse that dealt with poverty and wealth and justice and oppression. Then took a pair of scissors and they actually cut out physically every one of those verses out of the Bible, about 2,000. The result was a volume that laid in tatters that was barely held together. Beginning with the Mosaic books, through the books of history, through the Psalms and the Proverbs and the major and minor prophets, to the four Gospels, to the book of Acts, to the epistles and Revelation, so central was this theme to Scripture and these themes that the resulting pages of the Bibles was in shambles. See, the message of missions and serving and peace and justice for the world is God's passion. And literally the binding of the, is the binding that holds all the scriptures together. Without it, there isn't. It's the same risk-taking missions and service that God's been calling us to engage in for centuries, for millennia, as followers of Christ. The same Christ who said in, in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Shane Claiborne, well-known pastor and author, asked participants in a survey who claimed to be strong followers of Jesus whether Jesus spent time with the poor. Nearly 80% said yes. Later in the survey, he says, he slipped in another question. He asked the same group of followers where they spent time with the poor. And less than 2% did. 2%. How much time have you spent with the poor? I learned a powerful lesson, he writes. We can admire and worship Jesus without doing what he did. We can applaud what he preached and stood for without caring about the same things. We can adore his cross without taking up ours. I had come to see the great tragedy of the church is not that Christians do not care about the poor, but that Christians do not know the poor. We have to ask, do we know the poor? How many of us engage with the poor daily, on a weekly, on a monthly, on a yearly basis? 
I mean, about room at the end. Room at the end is, is actually engaging with 12 homeless guys every week that we would never see otherwise who are brought within our place, our home, to find a place of shelter for the night. Feed the Needs was all about that. The whole idea of being able to actually interact with folks who are poor, who are struggling, who are trying to survive. The food pantry sees it the most of anybody. They see it every day just about. People who are actually interacting. People that no one else sees in this church whatsoever. How often do you see the poor? Do you actually go across town? Stop in places, or do you drive through those areas with your windows rolled up and silently kind of moving over to lock your doors to make sure nothing happens to you in those places where the poor might live across the tracks, where we struggle to be present? You see, we as Christians can be very quick to serve one another, that, that is for sure, and even the world, but we like to do it on our own terms. Not on God's terms. What matters to God? Because God's terms always involve some kind of risk. You see, risk-taking pushes us out of our comfort zone. It stretches us beyond our service to people we already know. It exposes us to other people, to situations and needs we would never ordinarily encounter apart from our deliberate intention to serve Christ. It's going to those places we're not willing to go, that we're not comfortable. It's all those moments when you're looking at those people who are along the roadside and they're trying to give you a paper or to receive some kind of help and that sort of thing, and you you sit there and and you're praying to God that somehow the light's going to be green so you can go through so you don't have to stop. You don't have to talk to them. You can make sure you make it through. Or at least you're not the first person in line where you have to actually have to make contact with them and look them in the eye and actually pretend like they're a human being for a moment and actually think about them as a child of God. We try to avoid situations like that. It's going to the other side of town when you go down to Nashville and those places where the homeless live and, the, and they're walking across the streets and the places are a mess and, and, and there's trash everywhere and there's bars on the windows and you're like, I just drive through here to get to the other part of town. I don't really want to be here. That's the risk of going out to places where we would never go, where we would never be. I remember going down and, and serving this summer at the rescue mission and, and the 500 guys who come in to get food, and some are nice and some are not so nice, and everywhere in between, and it's Robert and I and, and uh, Jared in the dining room with all of these guys, all the introverts are in the dining room with all the people, and it's just like, oh my gosh, and you know, you're just trying to put a smile on your face and be nice and, and everything else in the world, and it's just, you know, it's scary, it's risky. I was thinking the other, other day, we talking about first service, that we need to go ahead and schedule that again. And the first thought in my mind was, I don't want to be in the dining room again. Second thought was, you need to be in the dining room again because you, because you can't handle it. You're going to be comfortable behind the line serving the food. That's easy. There's a wall between us. When you have to go up and actually talk to them and look at them in the face and be present. I've told you the stories before of, of pulling up to the light you know, at the place where someone's standing there and rolling the window down and finding out the person on the other side of that's name is Jeremy. I've told you that story. And others about stopping and asking their name and praying with them at least. Don't pretend like they don't exist. 
The thing is, we need to serve these people and come and know them, whether or not they've ever become part of our community of faith or not. That's not our goal. We aren't here to promote our church. We're here to connect more folks to be in service and served by Christ and, and have that balance. It doesn't matter about who does it. If the motives of Christ get so caught up in our hearts, so much so they start to take root. They bear fruit. So we don't want to just get through the light. We, want, we hope and pray the light would actually stop us. Stop us for an opportunity to be able to talk to someone and to get to know them a little bit and just say, I'm praying for you and reach out and give them a love card or whatever or that sandwich you made in the back or, you know, Shirley talks about in our class all the time about all of the kindness kits that she has with her to give out to those who are homeless and tells us the stories of that. You can do lots of things if you have Christ's heart to want to do them. But it requires that. Bishop Robert Snazy, who wrote the Five People Practices, asked this question, What have we done in the last six months to make a positive difference in the lives of others that we would not have done if it were not for our relationship with Christ? What have we done in the last six months to make a positive difference in the lives of others that we would not have done if it were not for our relationship with Christ? Lots of folks do lots of good deeds. You don't need to be a Christian to do good deeds and to serve people and help people. People do that all the time without serving Christ whatsoever. That doesn't make us different. But what do you do differently because you serve Christ that you would not have done? In risk-taking missions and service, both the servant and the served are transformed. That's how it works. There's a reason for that. Because in risk-taking missions and service, you're actually serving Christ, not the person. You're serving Christ. When we were down there, I wasn't serving 500 guys I don't know. I was looking in the face of Christ every single moment with every person I was with. Amen? It doesn't matter who they are in reality because they're all the face of Christ when we look at them. Maybe you've experienced that at the room at the end when the 12 guys have been here and you've gotten to know them. Many of you more have experienced it and feed the need. When you've looked in the face of the person who's receiving the food and you've gotten to know them and their name and you've prayed for them and you've walked with them and you've cried with them and you've been present with them. It's a life-changing thing, isn't it? You can't go back to the way that you were. That's why the first two events that we did here when I first got here were Stop Hunger, which was putting together all those food things, and which is a great thing, but there wasn't really interaction with people. I don't, I don't know that's my first choice of how to do this. And then the second event we did that was a serving event was Feed the Need in that first December, and it blew everybody's minds. And changed the way we looked at people around us and our neighbors and those that we serve. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus told a parable of the great judgment. And it appears only in Matthew. And Matthew puts it at the finale of Jesus' ministry, before he heads to the cross and before he goes to the narrative leading up to Easter. Most of you recognize it. These are the last words Matthew wanted everyone to know before Jesus goes to the cross. But Master... When did we see you hungry or naked or in prison? And the key verse is this. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. 
You see, the simple but highly profound truth is this. It all boils down to when we serve others, we serve Jesus Christ. Amen? When we serve others, we serve Jesus Christ. That's how it works. That's why we do it. Not for the feel-good feelings or because we feel like we accomplished something. That's, those are all secondary things that may or may not be there. We don't serve because of that. They're nice to have. Bishop Snazy says once again, the stretch of Christian discipleship is to love those for whom it is not automatic or easy or common or accepted. To love those who do not think like us or live like us and to express, res- express respect and compassion and mercy to those who do not know and who may never be able to repay us. This is the love of Christ that pulls out of us. That's true love. When you're not thanked. When it doesn't go the way you want it to go. And why is all this risk-taking? doesn't seem like it's risk-taking, really. I mean, but reality it is. Because when we, when we engage in risk-taking mission, we must be willing to live with disappointment or ungratefulness or failure or uncertainty. Part of the risk of real missions and service is the uncertainty of whether it makes any difference at all. Do what we do make any difference at all in someone's life? It means many times we may go to great lengths to help those in our community and it may still feel like it's a drop in a bucket and we have an eyedropper and all we're doing is dropping help into an empty bucket and we're not getting anywhere fast. I mean, think about it. How many times in the pantry have you felt like, oh my gosh, I'm done with this today. I am sick and tired of these families being ungrateful and being unfaithful and not following the rules and I want to hang my hat up and give this whole thing up. How many times you work with the homeless and people, all the 12 guys who come, they're not all happy. They're not all great. you got a troublemaker here and there. Somebody's not willing to go, oh my gosh, you see, people are so great. You're so nice. You're so nice. I've known folks who've gone down to serve the homeless and they've peed on them. You want to find some real understanding of what service looks like when it doesn't work the way you want it to, when it's not happy-go feelings. I served in, high, in, in college going out to prison fellowship and brought toys to the kids and the kids were ungrateful for the toys that we brought. Why didn't I get a PlayStation? Why didn't I get something? Folks, that's missions and service risk-taking. The fact is that maybe you do something that someone doesn't care about one bit what you do, and you still do it. Because once again, if you only do it for the good feelings and what you get out of it, you're not serving Christ, you're serving yourself. Christ didn't get good feelings out of the things that he did very often. You serve Jesus. Mother Teresa didn't serve people that she served because they were very ungrateful. She served Christ. That's what kept her in the streets of Calcutta with the poor. She served Christ, even when she didn't believe. See, part of the risk is it doesn't work a lot of times. Or the difference that we make something we don't see. We don't know. We don't have the change happens and the ever change or the same people they were 20 years ago. We, we don't know. We can't see the results sometimes. But it's out of our obedience to Christ that we have to try. Amen? 
that we keep trying no matter what, we don't give up even in our worst days. We, we are obedient to Christ, so we serve the people of Christ. And we have to keep doing it no matter the effectiveness. Or as former football player Jim McMahon puts it, yes, risk-taking is inherently failure-prone. Otherwise, it would be called sure thing-taking. It's not a sure thing to serve people for Jesus. It's a risk. Christ calls us to relationships, not results. We are called to be fruitful, but we are called more to be faithful, even when we're not fruitful, folks. We are called to be faithful to do what it is that Christ is calling us to do. Hebrews 6.10 says, God isn't unjust, so he forgets your efforts and the love you have shown for his namesake when you served and continue to serve God's holy people. God's not forgetting what's, what's happening. It doesn't matter the outcome of it. It matters the fact is that we are called to serve and that we serve. So the question we must ask ourselves is a hard and probing question. It's a question about focus. It's the same question I asked six years ago in basically the same time frame. Are we an internally focused church or an externally focused church? If asked another way, if Good Shepherd were to leave our community tomorrow, would anyone notice would anyone care? That was the question that I asked six years ago. And I think over the last six years, the answer has become clearer and clearer. Of more of the things that we have done to reach into our community and to be active in the lives of people in our community. In your own limited whatever, you can think about all the things that we do now that we didn't do six years ago. From backpacks to feed the need. The food pantry was much smaller back then. It was one of the things in operation. Room at the end was the only major piece that we did along those lines. There are a lot of things to do now that some may say that sometimes we're, we're stretched thin trying to meet the needs of the community around us. Pastor Eric Swanson and Rick Russaw in their book, The Externally Focused Church, say that most churches blatantly or subtly have an unspoken objective. How can we be the best church in the community? And they staff and they budget and they plan accordingly. And how a church determines this answer to this question is how they pray, how they staff, how they do their finances, their time, their technology, their facilities. These two say that becoming an externally focused church is not about becoming the best church in the community. And we all struggle with that. I look over here and go, wow, look what they have over there. Look what they can do over here. And wow, look at that. Wow, they're really the, the church of the community. And look at them. They've got seven campuses. And, you know, they've got all this thing. And 500 folks are attending their church. And 1,000, 2,000. And they've got 400 Cub Scouts and all this different stuff. And we look at that and go, wow. But the externally focused church asks a different question. How can we be the best church for the community. Not the best church in the community. How can we be the best church for the community? That one preposition changes everything. The in or the for. And as messengers, we Christians have a difficult task. Not because the message of good, God's good news is not compelling. 
but because we're not very good at being compelling messengers. We are better at being able to tell somebody else what we don't believe about what they believe and what we don't like about what they believe or anything else, but none, hardly any of us ever tell anybody else around us what we actually do believe to the positive. We are quick to be up in arms about something, but we aren't so quick to share our faith with someone so they can actually know what it is that we really believe about Jesus. And because of that, they don't hear anything that's compelling. There's a meme on Facebook going around right now that's 89% of people are invited to church by a friend. Not the pastor, not staff, a friend. If you don't invite a friend to be a part of your circle, your small group, your, the church experience, whatever, if you don't do that, then no one else is going to. And that's why the church is dying. Because we no longer think that's important. We think it's more important to defend our territory and to say things about each other. What if we were as passionate about actually sharing the good news of the gospel as we were about making sure we proclaim what it is we don't believe? How incredible would that be? Russo and Swanson say, we decide to open our doors to other community organizations. We decide that to love and to serve our community, we must know our community and meet their real needs not the needs we perceived or assumed they had. Over the last six years, we have spent time doing just that, trying to figure out what the need of our community is through our school partnerships, through all the other things that we've been doing and over time we've done with the community daycare at one time, various opportunities, our Cub Scouts and our Boy Scouts, we are closer to them than we've ever been in the last decade. There are community groups meeting all the time. There are the folks that we look across the street and we need to be looking at and going, okay, our community, our neighborhood is being built right next door to us. This is our neighborhood. Taco Bell gets finished, our neighborhood. But how many of us have been over there? How many of us, maybe Teraki Madness, because it's really good food, so you go over there and you got that kind of handle, but how many of us went into Batteries and Bulbs? Do you know Batteries and Bulbs would give you a discount for being a church member? He didn't even ask us to do that. He didn't even tell us about it either. Someone found out by going there. How many of us have been in there? Don't need a new dentist? That's fine. Have you stopped in and said, I'm so glad you're here. I am praying for you in this office and for all people who come in here. Don't need your nails done? That's fine. Anybody gone in there and talked to them? Gotten to know them? What makes the difference that they would even know that this building exists and the people in it from being four blocks down? I'm not asking you to go to Target and go to Glenbrook. I'm asking you to walk outside the door and go 50 steps to go to the places that are right there in our community, our neighborhood. Ash, who is the manager of the joint clinic going in, has been asking us again and again, what can we do for you? How can we help? How can we be good, good, good neighbors? Chris at Teraki Madness is a good neighbor. The Ivy Health that's going in next. Infusions, transfusions. The folks who are going in there in a bad place in their life, more than likely. Who's going to go in there and leave cards to be able to say, hey, we're praying for you? Not only just work there, but the folks going through it. How is the church going to make any difference to the people who live and work majority of their life right there 
next to us. Because most of the time we talk about this building, and I go out someplace, and I say I'm the pastor of Good Shepherd, and they go, oh, where is Good Shepherd? Oh, on the corner of Glenbrook. Oh, you mean that big church on the corner of Glenbrook? Yeah, yeah, that big one. Or they go, oh, that small church in the corner of Glenbrook? I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. It's only, it's only like two blocks. Our whole building is like two blocks. I mean, this is a huge place. The anchor is the corner of Glenbrook. And yet, how many folks know about us, interact with us in the community? And then something else we've been trying to get off the ground over the last year is service in small groups. We mentioned that the serving in small groups involves three things. The first thing it involves is accountability. Some level of prayer request up to the level of we're going to hold each other accountable for our goals and for our spiritual needs. The second thing is a, spirit, is a focus on discipleship, not a Bible study, but actually scripture that helps us to be transformed into better disciples. And the third thing is a biblically focused small group, as Jesus defines it, is serving together. And yet that is the hardest one, serving together. Getting us to serve together in a small group is like pulling teeth. We don't serve together in our Sunday school classes and our larger groups. We serve together when we do something, but I mean actually going together with those three or four people and going and doing something where you serve together completely independently of what we do as a larger church. If you've ever done that before, you'll know that it really bonds you together in a whole different way. A hundred of us serving together at Feed the Need is not the same as three or four of us serving and doing something. They're both important. But that's the peace. Jesus was serving together with the disciples all the time. The scripture talks about in Hebrews 10, 24, let us, not cons- let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good what? Deeds. Good works. And this is the best part. Because it combines the next verse, which we use all the time about presence, about being in small groups, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Those two verses, they go together. Serving and being a part of a small group and encouraging one another, they go together. Instead of our small groups are really even branching out so much, they're going to find their own ministry opportunity somewhere else. Like one group is going to Springfield to a women's uh, shelter kind of thing and they're actually going there to do that just themselves. The church is not involved at all. We've got to focus on things like that, short-term missions. I mean, we're, ama- we're, we're involved in so many ways, it's amazing. But it doesn't mean that we don't stop supporting those things. But at the same time, we've got to think about what God wants us to be about in the community of faith of Hendersonville. We can support all those things, but the crucial question still is, what needs are not being met in Hendersonville by anybody else? Where is our place to be able to do those things? I phrase it this way, what is 525, that's our address, in case you didn't know, 525, what is 525 doing to meet the needs of 37075 and the 615, our area code? What is 525 doing here in the corner? What is Christ's purposes for us in the corner of Glenbrook? 
In the close, sociologist, activist, and author W.B. Du Bois said, the most important thing to remember is this, to be ready at any moment to give up what you are for what you might become. To give up what you are for what you might become. We might say, good shepherd, what Christ is calling us to become once we belong and believe what it is he's saying to us. See, I believe that a good shepherd, we're getting ready to move from that place six years ago to the place where Christ wants us to go next. The place after the dead is gone over the next year, a year and a half, or whatever it might be, depending on how generous we are towards getting that peace taken care of finally to what it looks like in five years because our struggle has been what does five years from now look like at Good Shepherd? What is God calling us to do? To be? Because most of the time we've been looking two weeks ahead or a month ahead. But what is God really speaking to the hearts of the Good Shepherd community about what's next? And but what happens after? There is so much more that we are called to do and to be in serving the 37075 and beyond in the 615 because we still are connected to those, this place. Nashville is still our home. You tell anybody you live in Hendersonville, they're not from here, they have no idea where you live. So the next thing you say is, I'm from Nashville. Because Nashville is our home. And what is our home going to look like now that we're almost through those times and when it was so closed in when I got here and we're so focused on inside, we became an externally focused church and began doing all these things for the community. What's still out there? What need do we need to be looking at to meet in our community of 37075. Amen. So as we gather together and as we close this service off, I just hope you'll think about that. I hope think what it means to be what does it mean to generously serve? What does that look like in our lives? And as we think about that and think about where is God leading us? I mean this song is perfect. Where he leads me I will follow. I don't know where God's leading us in that moment. And we've struggled as a church leadership to be able to figure out what five years looks like. Is it a school on this property? I don't know. Is it somewhere else where we meet in addition to here? Should we sell the whole thing and start over somewhere and just begin again? Uh, you know, who knows? Is it tackling all the medical debt that's out there? You know, several churches have pooled their money together and they can buy the medical debt for cents on the dollar. You know, if we got $5,000, we came together, we would pay off over $50,000, $60,000, $70,000 worth of medical debt for some people. It's that easy. It's not for everybody to do. What is it? What is God calling us to serve generously in? Let us stand and sing where he leads me.
city. less focused on ourselves and more focused on God. To hear what God's saying to us individually. Those cards in front of you, if you leave them blank, there is no way to get any of those things there. This group has worked hard to pull together this idea. Think about the things that, that are burning passion for you, no matter what they are. Maybe we can't do them all, but we can do some of them. But if we don't have the ideas and we aren't listening to God to write those things down and to share those things, then we can't really act on them. Someone at some point came to this church and said, let's do room at the inn. And someone probably said, well, we can't possibly pull that off. How are we going to do that with only one shower right here, which is the only shower they had then. There's one shower right on the other side of that door. 
and they stayed in the fellowship hall. And that's what they used before the CLC was built. And they did it. There is something that God is calling us to do that we can do in this massive facility and with these great people that we have. Listen for it. Listen to hear where he is calling you and us to go in generous service. Amen. Amen. Go with God. You're dismissed.